we actually closed with having a squatter still in the top floor. And just remember, you're about to hear just every possible mistake happen in a rehab. It, <laughs> everything happened. Hey, this is Heath Padgett, and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 185. The RV Entrepreneur is a weekly podcast for nomadic entrepreneurs, and on today's episode, I interview my friend Mike, who shares all of the crazy mistakes he made in starting his first rental property. Listening to a story was almost enough to scare me away from ever renovating a house or an Airbnb, because that's something we're thinking about right now and investing in a campground potentially. But that was until he gets his listing up and told me how much he is making every month from his Airbnb rentals. So if you've ever thought about managing multiple rent houses or renovating an Airbnb and specifically doing it from your RV like Mike does, this episode is a must listen. Support for today's episode is provided by Fairdrop. Fairdrop is a service that will send you texts and email alerts for flight deals all around the world for up to 80% off. Earlier this spring, I was sitting at my computer when I saw an email from Fairdrop that said round trip flights from Dallas, Texas to Venice, Italy for $473. These tickets were normally over a thousand bucks. I called Alyssa immediately and told her that I was on Delta's website with two tickets to Italy in my cart and then told her the price and then she said book them. This was even though our daughter wasn't here yet, but that's a story for another time. As a result, we were able to spend the last month in a motorhome rental over in Italy with our five-month-old daughter with super cheap round-trip flights. And honestly, it was the adventure of a lifetime, and that deal was enough of an impetus for us to go over there and book them, even though we've been dreaming about Italy for a very long time. And because we loved Fairdrop so much, I sent the founder, Nate of Kara Nate, an email asking if he would give my podcast listeners an exclusive deal. And he said that he would give an extra 30 days of a free trial for anybody who wants to sign up. So if you go to fairdrop.com forward slash Heath and Alyssa, you can get 60 days free of Fairdrop. And then after that, it's only $47 a year, which I think is kind of a steal considering if you book one flight like us, you could save hundreds of dollars. Again, you can go to fairdrop.com forward slash Heath and Alyssa to grab this deal. All right, let's get into today's episode with Mike. Awesome, Mike. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. We've talked a little bit on like Instagram. It's kind of funny how you build friends on like random different social medias where you're just like, I have Twitter friends that I would like just talk to on Twitter and people on Instagram. So we met on Instagram. You've been renting out and buying lots of different properties, renting out on Airbnb, and we're going to be talking about today. So I guess let's start at the beginning of your story. When and how did you first start getting into real estate? So our first one was a duplex, 1930s build. It was a mess. It's something that if I was looking back at it now, I would not have bought because it is a lot of work. But it was a, I guess you would call it a house tax. It was something where we planned on buying it, living in it as an owner occupied, and then renting out the bottom part as a duplex. So that was our first one. And that was near downtown Houston in the infamous Third Ward. Gotcha. And when you said a house hack, that means that it's like a duplex, and, but you're going to live in it and rent out another part. That's the hack part. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So it's a way of, you can also do it with the single family where I guess, let's say it's, it's just, you know, you and your wife or, you know, just you buy like a three bedroom house and you rent out both bedrooms. Let's say that your mortgage for that place is 1200 a month. 
you rent out each bedroom for like 500 a month, you know, at that point, you're essentially living in there for $200, more than your interest. So like that 200 will go back into your house. So it's, and that can be with the single family, duplex, triplex, fourplex, the max that, that you can buy as an owner occupied. And it's a way of eliminating or greatly reducing your own living costs by making rent off of the other one. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Whenever you guys first started getting into real estate, so taking even a step back further than that, I know you met your wife traveling in Malaysia. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So what was happening in your life during this time that you even wanted to start getting into real estate? I'm always kind of fascinated to hear what's the process that was like, hey, pushed you into getting real estate. Sure. Well, I guess let's go a little bit farther back than that. Let's um, go to childhood. Exactly. <laughs> So I'm trying to figure out how far back should I really go? Okay, so first, my dad passed when I was 17 from hep C. He got that from a bad blood transfusion when I was like four from a car accident where, you know, my family got like $2.2 million out of it when I was young. They weren't college educated. It was the 90s. All that got blown. I mean, it just got wasted. Nothing to show for it except one thing. They bought a mobile home park here in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And so I guess that was my first time to kind of see that you can buy something and use that as your main source of income. So that's where my dad lived. That's where I guess he worked. And I saw that that was enough. There was a 42-unit mobile home park. And I was like, okay, so you can buy real estate and live off of that. So that was my first time to really see that. So then after that, I went to college, started to study site. Then I moved into small business management like a business bachelor's and minor on that was focused on real estate. So I always had an idea that maybe I would want to do that, but it definitely wasn't a focus. I guess it kind of was, but I'm 32 now, 10 years ago when I was just graduating college, I would have not seen me at this point now because I graduated, went overseas to Asia because, you know, we're about the same age. The job market was crap for the recession. And while over there, I was a diving instructor, which I, you know, I just kind of fell into. I went there just to kind of travel around, did my first dive in Malaysia. I grew up in Arkansas. If anybody's familiar with Arkansas, there is no ocean here. I'm completely landlocked and the uh, lakes here, you can dive in them. I have once. It's horrible. It's cold. It's dark. I would never want to do it again. <laughs> that just kind of happened. And that's where I met my wife. And then we just kind of traveled over there for two years by choice. A year kind of not by choice. We got married and we were waiting on her green card to show up. And Malaysia and Indonesia had just changed the rules for Iranian citizens. And so we were kind of scrambling where to go to because she didn't have her green card yet. So I took a job in China teaching English and she was able to join with that on a spousal visa. And while we were there, she got her green card. And after the year in China, we moved back to the U.S. And then we moved to Seattle because her family is in Vancouver, Canada. And that's kind of where I started to look back into doing real estate, possibly find something, you know, during that transitional time where I could make passive income to go back overseas and live. But listeners familiar with the West Coast know that Seattle is not cheap, weren't able to, to do anything there. I was trying to figure out what to do for work. I was a sales person for a software company for insurance, hated it. I had to go to work every single day from 7 a.m. to 5. So I jumped into teaching because it allowed us a bit more flexibility. And I went down for an interview down in Houston, and I got that job out in Kitty, Texas. And then you know, saw real estate was affordable there. We jumped into our first house after about two years living there. And that was our first Airbnb. And then from that point, that's grown into within two years, being able to easily sustain us the full passive income was still having enough to actually buy more houses, rehab them, and just keep growing those investments. Wow. There's so many things that kind of stuck out to me. So <laughs> one thing is you went over to Malaysia and you spent some time in China. During that time, like you graduated from college and decided to go travel internationally. Right. 
And so what was your income during this time? You said you were a dive instructor, but was the idea kind of just like, I'm going to go spend, you know, six months to a year traveling the world? Or did you have a plan on it being, you know, several years? Or what was kind of the thought behind that? No plan whatsoever, <laughs> like zero. If there's any listeners who have ever lived over there, I was essentially doing visa runs, which that means you land in Malaysia and you get a 90-day visa on arrival. Once that 90 days is up, you can go to like Singapore, or Thailand, or in a, wherever, leave and then come back in theory another 90 days. Um, so essentially, I would pop around from Malaysia to Thailand to Indonesia for about two years, living and working on a tourist visa. Hopefully, no one from the government there is listening. <laughs> but it's very, very common. Very common. I was an instructor and then later became a dive master. We would work at resorts in Malaysia and then we would freelance a bit in and, uh, Bali and uh, Indonesia, a little bit in Thailand, but mostly between Malaysia and Indonesia. I'm having a very hard time not making like this whole podcast episode about you being a diver and resorts and stuff like that because I really do want to get into Airbnb. But did you have a background in diving? And was this the plan going over there? Did you already have a job lined up or was it, I'm going to go to Malaysia and then you discovered diving. Either way, it's cool. When I went over there the first time, graduated college, I had a little bit of uh, student loan money left over. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to take like a little bit of a break. College was like five years. And I was looking at, you know, where's the most affordable? You got Europe. And then I saw, this is going to sound really funny, but I saw Hangover 2. And I was like, I could do that. I could go over there. So I went. I never left the country beforehand. It was just me on an airplane and went over there. And after about two months, I went diving for the first time. And then I came back home and I moved to Austin, kind of. And then I, my vehicle was there. My stuff was there. I was at a friend's house. But after about two weeks of looking for a job, I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. So then I got a hold of the dive instructor who taught me how to dive. And he offered me a job back there. This was January 2012. And so I went back. I interned there as a dive master. After about two months, I became an instructor. Then I met Layla March of 2012. And then we just did that around Southeast Asia for those two years. So we were waiting on her green card and went over to China and taught yep. there. And what was it about Austin? Like you wanted to go have different experiences outside of the U.S.? Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their quality of life was just really good. Super cheap. You can live on a thousand a month. You can fly to a different country for like a hundred bucks. Yeah, it's paradise. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so getting into what you're doing now with Airbnb, I'm very interested in this. It's something that Alyssa and I have talked about a lot. And I think for us, it could even be a stepping stone to owning a campground or something like that. So you get back from traveling internationally after several years, you're doing what? You're trying to figure out what's next. And you're like, I have kind of a background in real estate. State. Walk me through, I guess, the beginning process of getting this first property and what you were hoping for during this time. Yeah. So I guess it started with realizing that I'm not really made for like a nine to five job. I had one in Seattle that it paid really well. It was like 90000 a year, but I hated it. And then the cost of living there was just so much. So just imagine being able to live on 1000 a month, now living in Seattle and needing minimum like 5000 a month just to like pay for your rent and your car, and to have a car, right, which is a whole other thing. Food costs more. And I looked at the flexibility of teaching how I would have summers off and have some free time, Christmas time off and Thanksgiving. 
and I could use that time to maybe build something else. It's really, really easy to get a teaching cert, an alt cert in Texas. So I actually started to do that from Seattle. So I would go take the test at what they were called, but like a testing center in Seattle. And I got certified. And so I flew down to Houston, stayed with a friend, had an interview out in Katy and got that job. And then we just, with our Prius, right, we towed like a 3,000 pound U-Haul all the way from Seattle down to Katy, Texas. And that took about five days. We, I think our max speed was like 45, but we got like 32 miles to the gallon. <laughs> Nice. And so we get there, you know, real estate, I'm sure is, you know, you're in Denton is affordable, especially considering, you know, how much everything is in like Portland and Seattle and Los Angeles, all the West Coast areas there. But to qualify for your first house, you need kind of like two years of a consistent job, consistent income. And I'm sure as an entrepreneur, you know, how that can be a bit, you know, funky with your taxes and, and whatnot. Since I was overseas for three years, I didn't have any of that. And so I needed to work as a teacher for about two years to qualify for our first house, which is what I did. I taught in Katy for a year and I taught in Ailey for a year. And during that time in Ailey, which is about half an hour outside of Houston, during the spring, I would be going in, literally driving around after work, going through just everywhere in Houston. I grew up in uh, Arkansas, and so I wanted to go find a little niche neighborhood. I could buy something that I could fix up, I could house hack, and you know, maybe at some point turn into an Airbnb, possibly. That wasn't the initial goal, but it was just, you know, I wanted to have multiple possible exit strategies. Yeah, that makes sense. So the pretty much the singular goal, it sounds like with teaching in Houston area was to get the consistent income so you could get a loan and buy an investment property. Exactly. Yep. Essentially, yeah. Gotcha. I love it. It's interesting. Would you consider yourself a really patient person? Was it hard to be like, I'm going to do this for two years or nah, not really? It's just what you have to do. I would not consider myself patient. No, uh, <laughs> no. Long-term goal oriented. Yeah. I've kind of always been like that. Yeah. And I would say something that I feel like a lot of people are missing to be able to be like that is they don't kind of get to see where they want to be at. Like I've kind of already experienced where I wanted to actually be in life, being able to travel, see places. You could live in Southeast Asia easily. And I don't mean like living in a cheap place and having a crappy car. I mean, you could live comfortably on three grand a month. And so when most Americans think, you know, I need to save up a million dollars to be able to retire, you don't actually need that. And so for like me, it seemed like a goal that I could reach on making that much passive income so that I could go live somewhere outside of the U.S. comfortably. And so taking, you know, two, three, four, five years to get to that point where I could just make two or three thousand a month in income passively was something, you know, that I could bear with while getting to that point. Totally makes sense. So let's talk about the first investment property, because I think for most people, that mm -hmm. is the most intimidating one. Pulling the trigger, it's a lot of money. And you're going to be on the hook for a long time. So what was the property that you found that you're like, this is the one, this is going to be the first one, let's do it. That was in the third ward, which is, was, is, kind of, was one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the U.S. It's now being gentrified pretty heavily. I'd say I probably got in there right about the point where that started out. I guess what got me was the location. We had been on Airbnb since 2014. We had used it. I feel like we were the right age group and demographic that uses Airbnb. So I look at it that way. You know, the area has a bunch of older homes, but they're all brick. They have character. There's a lot of neighborhoods in Houston that are in much better shape, like high-end neighborhoods with houses that look exactly the same. But Houston, I'm sure Dallas is a bit of the same way, is extremely segregated by like the highways and all that. And so that area had been in decline for years. And now it's back on the uh, 
up and up. And so I saw that uh, and they were able to bring the price down to something that I could afford. And again, we did all of this with only my teaching salary. So we qualified for the loan for like 300,000. I think I was making like 52,000 a year gross. And my wife was working at Eddie Bauer. She was making like 10, just part time. And we bought that house there. We have student loan, we had some credit card debt, you know, basic normal American millennial stuff. And we bought that with what's called an FHA 203K loan, where most buyers will go out and buy something that's like turnkey ready, like paint's done, the floor's done, ceiling's done, windows are good, foundation's good, everything's just, you know, a normal house, you walk in, you buy it. When you do that, you're giving all of that equity to the person that either built it or fixed it up. There's no way to add value to the house yourself to put that equity back in your own pocket. This one, we were able to buy it and then do a rehab. That was a whole other story of hell. <laughs> and so that's what we did. So we were able to buy it and then finance the rehab loan all in the same purchase there. But we'll get into it soon. But uh, it was definitely not all roses and flowers. Far, far from it. Far from it. So with that particular loan, and I'll make sure to link up that in the show notes if you want to go check out what that loan is. But basically, you're able to say, hey, the house is valued at, say, 80000 but we're also right. going to do $120,000 or $150,000 or whatever of renovation. Right. And basically the bank was willing to give you a loan for that entire amount of 300,000, yeah. even though you're making 50,000 a year. Exactly. Yep. Wow. That seems kind of like a lot. Yeah. Um, well, so I know nothing about like loans or I've never bought real estate, so, but it, it seems like a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's well within the government guidelines, I think for an FHA loan, being married, your first, uh, if it's a duplex, it can be up to like 550000 single family, 450, triplex, 600, fourplex, I think it's a little bit more. And then also if you're in more expensive areas, like let's say San Francisco, I think they'll allow you to get even more. But it's not about the loan amount, it's about how much you'll pay each month in a mortgage. So let's say that we make on taxes for that year, let's say 60,000 take home net, they do it based on your debt to income ratio. So our mortgage was gonna end up being 1925 a month with you know taxes, insurance, obviously the loan amount too, you know, for the principal and the interest. And that was enough to keep our debt to income ratio at that time. I think we were going to be at like 48 to 50%, something like that. You can go up to about 52, sometimes 55%. So if you see how much money that you make every month, you can go buy a house with, with a mortgage that will take up, let's say roughly up to 50% of your income. At that point, you know, we didn't have a car loan. We had two cars that we had loans on. We sold both of them. So we had no light car loan whatsoever. We were renting. So, you know, obviously we were from a rental where we're paying 1200 a month to a house. And then we had a little bit of consumer debt, let's say $5,000 in credit card debt. That was maybe 200 a month in payments. And then student loan debt, I'd say between both of us be about 600 a month. So if you look at, we were paying 1200 a month in rent, we can now go buy this house and our payment would maybe go up like 700 a month at that point there. We didn't do any type of crazy loopholes, government loan. We were shocked that we could qualify for that much too. I think most people would be shocked at how much they can actually get a house loan for, even like 30, 40 or $50,000 a year. So obviously it could end up being a bad thing if you buy the wrong house and you're, you know, and you're you know, bad with making payments and stuff. But if you're using it as an investment, that's money that someone's willing to give you for 30 years at like, what, 4.2% interest. And if you also keep in mind the fact that the dollar inflation is 2% every single year, that dollar is now going to be worth 60% less 30 years from now. So in a way, 
you're actually paying less on that house inflation wise over that 30 years. So like now, if we say the payment seems high, like 1900 a month in 30 years, that's going to be 60% less in theory. So really that's going to feel like let's say $900. So it's really, if you do it the right way, it's really a good way to grow your wealth. And if you do it the right way with like house hacking, increase your income and also lower your daily uh, cost for living, your rent, your home and all that stuff. So you guys bought this house, you were able to get the loan on it. And then what happened? <laughs> hell, hell happened. <laughs> like, Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. So did you have a background in construction or None. did Layla? Okay. So you guys were basically pretty ambitious. We did the same thing with our first RV on a very, very small scale. We pretty much just painted it, had new floors and then stuff like that. But I was like, yeah, we can do a renovation in a week. And it took... Yeah. You know, we did do it in 10 days, but we it wasn't anything super crazy. It was mostly cosmetic, as Joanna Gaines would say. So whenever you bought the house, what happened next? So yeah, our knowledge consisted of HGTV, Property Brothers. We also did the same thing. We bought an old 1990 Toyota motorhome for like 2500 Figured, again, I had no idea anything about RVs. I threw away the good fridge, apparently, that I just tossed out. Right. I threw out the hot water heater and I threw out the propane heater too. All not knowing what they were, I was like, I don't need these. They tossed them all out. So I, I had no idea. Um, and so we rebuilt that. I think about the summer before we bought that house. And again, it was supposed to be a week and it being like a month and a half. We still have that actually and it's an Airbnb now. So that was the most of our knowledge there was a mishappened RV rehab that turned the RV not into an R to an RV because it had none of the systems in it. Nice. Uh, yeah. And then, so how that worked is a bit of a story. We bought that house June. When was Hurricane Harvey? 2017, 2016, right? I don't remember. I, it was one of those years, 2016 or 2017. Hurricane Harvey, 2017. Okay. So we bought that house on July of 2017, two years back. And then it wasn't really livable as is, even though people were technically living in it. We actually closed with having a squatter still in the top floor. And just remember, you're about to hear just every possible mistake happen in a rehab. It, <laughs> everything happened. Okay. <laughs> we bought it with the squatter still in the upstairs, but we had to get the person we bought it from to pay them. Uh, it's called cash for keys. They paid them $200 to get them out. So then- Wait, somebody, we, what do you mean? Somebody was living in the house, living. but they hadn't been paying for rent or something like that? Exactly. Wow. Okay. So- Mistake one. Then when the rehab got started, we chose the cheapest bid that any contractor gave us. Mistake. Um, and then whenever the work actually got started, we left and went to Mexico for a month. So the rehab got started while we weren't there. Mistake. And then the reason we thought that we were fine is because this, you know, contractor seemed nice. We had a HUD consultant who's supposed to oversee everything. Couldn't find out they were in like cahoots and stuff. And so whenever we made it back, the house was not in good shape foundation. The guy who did it did a horrible job. He was like shimming the found, literally cut out part of our hardwood floor that we were supposed to save and then took some of the hardwood floor, kind of shim and fix part of the foundation. It was an absolute mess. The windows were done bad. They had pulled no permits on this house at all. So they were doing work without any city permits whatsoever. So we get back, the house is just ridiculous. And then Hurricane Harvey happens. Well, we just made it back. We had no fridge. We had no food, we had no pots and pans, we had nothing. So we had to actually leave after Hurricane Harvey happened because we had nothing. I remember going to Kroger and I just tried to buy whatever food I could. I bought like 15 cans of salmon at like $6 a pop. I bought like $8 worth, worth of salmon. And so we left and then we had to come back 
because Layla was starting her like first year teaching now. So when we bought that house, I was teaching. She was working at Eddie Bauer. And then whenever we bought the uh, house, she got a teaching job herself. If you've talked to teachers who, who like taught their first year, that is the hardest. And so we were having to live in that rehab that was done just in the most insane way possible while her going to her new teaching job and me going to a new teaching job also. After Hurricane Harvey, which means all the good contractors were like snatched up. They were doing work on houses that all flooded. City contracts, government contracts. Um, you know, there was so much money there for good contractors. It was just crazy. So we went through like two months living in a house that I wouldn't put my worst enemy in. We had to like reset the hot water heater every time that we showered. It was showering out of like a hole in the ceiling. Our tub was one of those like old antique tubs. It was crazy. We had one power outlet that worked in one bedroom. And by the time it started to get cold, which it snowed in Houston that winter for the first time since like 1940, we were living in there with crappy plumbing, no walls, just the exterior walls. So like insulation just did not even exist. And we were rolling one of those, you know, Walmart oil heaters from our bedroom, wake up at five, roll it into the bathroom so that, you know, we could get ready in a little bit of heat. And the bathroom had no light. We had to literally use camping lights and torches and stuff. And those, you know, lights that you hang from your hood when vehicle breaks down during the nighttime. That was our life for like almost like six months. So we found an actual contractor who was okay. He was affordable. He did okay work. It was fine. He got the house done. Let's just put it that way. And then at that point, we were just burnt out. And so we had actually talked to our realtor and our mortgage guy. And now that Layla had new income, we went to go buy another house about eight minutes south of there by the med center. Wait, 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 before you get into the next house. So at this point, you guys have been, had this house for, it sounds like the better part of a year. It's finally done. Right. And at this point, did you guys start renting it out or? So at that point, we found a property manager. We met with a few possible tenants, but we weren't really happy at the quality of, of tenants that we were going to be able to get. And then, so here comes our next bill. <laughs> so we decided to do Airbnb. Well, at this time, our contract was still finishing a few things and we were going to Ikea and buying furniture to furnish it to try it as an Airbnb. Well, I want to point fingers, but a guy that I had not seen over there before working for this contractor showed up to do some work. That next day, half of the furniture was stolen. And then the day after that, the rest of the furniture was stolen. So we had just bought $3,000 worth of beds, couches, all that good stuff from Ikea, and it gets stolen. And I mean like the sheets, the shower curtain, all kinds of stuff. It was insanity. So then we go buy it again, and we put it up on Airbnb, and lo and behold, it does really, really well. We go through all that hell of a just ridiculous newbie mistakes, bad contractors taking low bids, leaving while it's being worked you know, doing all these mistakes and then having Airbnb start out with like stuff being stolen two years ago, so now being golden. Over the past couple of years, you guys still have this property, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually really good. That property makes like seven grand a month. Wow. Your original loan is like 2000? Yeah. So that year of hell sounds like it, in the end, it's been worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's changed my mindset. Whenever there's something that's like more difficult, more of a hassle, more of a pain, it ends up being the better payoff. That's how I think of it now. There is a book that I, I don't necessarily like agree with all the titles now that are coming out of personal development books of needing to drop F-bombs in the title, but The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. He talks yes, about, I, I really like it, but he talks about the idea of choosing your pain. 
And I right. thought that that was really relevant, especially being in a startup in a software company right now, because I think about that a lot. I get to choose my pain. Like this is hard, but I chose this and I could choose other types of pain. Uh, like when I see my friends who are crushing it on YouTube and having lots of fun traveling the world. And I think about, oh, the pain that they chose was they were going to go not make money for a couple of years and travel and, you know, do all this stuff. And it kind of reframes your mind. You can have what you want, but you just have to be willing to choose the pain that comes with that process. Exactly. Yeah. And that was one of the pains that we chose. It was really, really difficult. My wife obviously hated it, but she had faith in me. And she also saw the potential that that area has and that house has. And so it worked out really well, but it, it was not all planned. It was definitely not easy. And then, so once we got both of those up and going, my wife again hated our monstrosity Toyota RV that we fixed up. It drove, it went to Maine and Chicago and back over a, a summer. It went down to Key West during Christmas. It did fun, but we, we wanted something better. Well, instead of selling it, I was like, well, you know what? It's in our backyard. It's kind of cute and funky. Why don't we put it up on Airbnb also? And lo and behold, it did really well. It's actually one of the most popular Airbnbs in Houston. Wow. Everything that we've tried with Airbnb has ended up doing really, really well. I guess it's because of the location. Like it's near downtown. We don't charge an arm and a leg for them. Like we're reasonable. The duplex each ranges from like 75 to 100 a night. The RVs range from like 25 to like 50 at night. You know, so they stay booked. After you got the first one up on Airbnb, because I know you said that you guys were feeling burned out. How long was it before you got a second house? We bought... The first house in July or June of 2017, we bought the second house in February. Again, owner occupied. That was a conventional loan, 5% down since we couldn't do FHA because you can only have one FHA loan at a time. And we bought that one, yeah, like March or February of 2018. And that one was already rehabbed. Still in a developing neighborhood near the Houston Medical Center. It's in Southside, but already done already rehabbed. It has its faults. This is a house where the person who rehabbed it went through some through some struggles too with the property line. And actually we're dealing with that now a little bit. The neighbor moved his house back in the 70s, built his house out onto that property line when he used to own both houses. And that was a bit of a hurdle to get that all sorted out. And you know, it, it was this guy's first rehab, so he had mistakes also, but it, it was in a good spot, super affordable for Houston being near downtown. We bought it for 125 and it was turnkey ready. But when we bought that, it's a three bed, two bath. We bought it with the idea of turning half of it into an Airbnb. So that was our second Airbnb. We turned the side of the house that has two bedrooms and a bathroom and the laundry. We separated it with like a farmhouse door so we can open it and shut it as we want to. That was our second Airbnb. It's a guest suite. Gotcha. And now flash forward a year and a half, you guys have several different properties. You said that you're hoping that you guys cross 200K in Airbnb revenue. So is this now y'all's full-time thing or are you still yeah. teaching? No, no, no. Uh, we stopped teaching back in May, thankfully. Because the whole goal for you is to be able to build up enough income and revenue that allowed you guys to go travel and do what you want. So what have been some of the things that you've been doing to create processes in these different properties so that tenants can come in? I guess I'm just interested in like, how did you develop those processes and, and services to find people to help you? Yeah. So initially we were doing it all of ourselves. So I would teach. And then after teaching or during my break, which was luckily about two hours, I would go and actually clean. So it was like having two jobs, three jobs, managing Airbnbs, teaching, and then also being the cleaner and handyman. 
And during that time, both those Airbnbs were doing well. So we actually bought RVs. So we had that Toyota one and we bought another one for like 600 bucks, put like 2000 in it and turned that into an Airbnb also where that first duplex was. And we bought an old Silver Streak. It's like an Airstream and put that in the back of our yard. And that's an Airbnb also. So in Houston, we eventually had the duplex, two doors there, bottom and top, two RVs in the back of that, our guest suite at our house, and then the Silver Stream were over at our house too. So at that point, there were six. So it was getting a bit much to handle ourselves. And we were making enough money by that point that we hired someone to start cleaning. We went through about two or three people beforehand. Eventually, we found someone on TaskRabbit. Worked out well. Michelle, and she's still with us now. And then as far as the Airbnb automation process, we use Smart B&B. We also use Turnover to like schedule all the cleanings and stuff. And I guess we also use keypad locks. So when a guest books, it sends them code for the door. So we don't have to be there and change out keys or do anything like that. It makes it a, a bit more easier. So it took some time to kind of get that sorted out also, but it was good that we did it all of ourselves for that first almost like nine to 12 months so that we could see the value in paying someone else to do that, to be able to have our own freedom, to be able to build this business more and more. How did you know that there was enough demand? I mean, obviously Houston's a big city, but did you look at any type of Airbnb booking statistics in the area to see like, oh, these properties have a lot of reviews. I know there's also companies out there that will do analytics for Airbnb so that you can kind of like look at the demand in different areas. Did you do any of that? Uh, for Houston, no. With Houston also, you know, we, we needed somewhere to live. <laughs> right. And so we use that, you know, take the risk with Airbnb. I would look and like, you know, see if there were Airbnbs already there zoom in and like choose some, you know, see how far booked out they are, how much they would charge. Whenever we started buying Airbnbs in my original hometown of Hot Springs, yes, I did use Air DNA to kind of see, you know, what was going on here. And so that it was good. But for Houston, no, but that's also because we needed somewhere to like live. So we bought something that could be an investment, not just our dream home that's gonna take up fifty percent of our income. Every house that we bought in Houston put money in our pocket. Every single one of them. Every debt that we took on real estate wise, and even now puts money in our pocket. That is the key. If you've ever read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you don't buy a debt that does not put money into your pocket. You always buy assets and assets put money in your pocket. And not to kind of toot my own horn here, whenever we opened Airbnbs in these areas, we were some of the first to do it. Those areas are getting more popular now and the competition's getting more and more because based on our Airbnb and probably saying that we have Airbnbs a bit down there more than we probably should have, you know, more and more are opening up in our areas. These are areas where people normally wouldn't invest in. They've been there for a long time, but now they're saying, you know, that people are willing to do a, a short-term rental there, you know, to stay in that area because of the proximity to downtown Houston, the proximity to the med center, like a reasonable rate, or they could stay somewhere nice, like in the Heights, and pay 200 a night and be a bit farther from everything, or they can stay with us in a bit more of a gentrifying neighborhood, you know, safe, not like the like hip spot, 75 a night. That makes sense. I know you guys have also been on the road in your RV while you've been managing some of these properties. Has there been a challenge when you haven't been on site at all, or has everything been pretty well processed out? Well, based on my stories so far, do you think it's been easy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> So we bought a road track last April. Yeah. We took that around the U.S. for the whole summer. And we had a property manager who was transitioned. They were like a regular rental property manager. They were kind of interested in Airbnb. So they watched ours for us. 
they didn't do a good job. The Airbnb wasn't very clean. The reviews weren't that great. The communication was confrontational between us and, and like them. The place didn't burn down for two months. So I guess they kind of did their job. Well, when then we made it that and they weren't doing everything up to our standards, but to that point, you know, we were creating what our standards were. They were definitely not up to what they were at that time. We fired them. Of course, in the classic, I find people who just do the most wonderful things. They actually opened up about another 11 competitive Airbnbs. But at this point, they're still doing the slumlord style Airbnbs. And ours are like getting more and more nicer, better reviews. And we're also moving from Houston to other markets too. So at first, they kind of slapped us in the face by opening up other Airbnbs to compete with like ours. But of course, you know, we're just better at it. And so now it's not even a thing. Yeah. I mean, you guys have 800 reviews at five-star average rating, which is yeah. pretty amazing. And for also only doing it for a couple of years, it's kind of insane and in a great way. We're kind of running towards the end of this interview, but the last question I have for you is what's the biggest thing that you've learned in the past 12 months? Also, I don't know why I didn't just say the like the last year. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that it's possible to create a lifestyle where you can do everything remotely like without having to go into an office from nine to five. Now it's not just Airbnbs. I also run rehabs. So while I was in South America the past two months, I purchased two houses and remotely ran two rehabs on two other houses and opened up and turned those into Airbnbs. Something you know, I would never have thought possible even six months back. You know, I was doing all of that while living inside of Houston, running the Airbnbs there. When I jumped to doing it into another state, kind of had to flex my skill set to figure out how to do this remotely. And it's totally possible with your phone and the value that you can bring to other people and that they're willing to pay for it. That was really something. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think about that all the time even though that's what this whole podcast has been about, just the whole idea that it is realistic to be able to build something and not have to do it in a conventional way, being there in person and being able to operate remotely. We're basically just leveraging the fact that we live in 2019 and, and we can do that. Like you can have the best of both worlds, provide something of value and have the lifestyle that you want. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I think the biggest hurdle for that, and right now we're looking for our next RV. We're not sure whether it's gonna be a bumper pool or a motorhome, but my biggest worry with doing that is, and it was a shock, how much of the US doesn't have good cell phone service, doesn't have good internet. We would be in Glacier or just in the middle of Yellowstone and have no service or at least no workable service. We didn't have the best cell phone booster, but even with that, sometimes you have no internet whatsoever. So I think that's going to be our next big hurdle whenever we find an RV that you know we're going to travel in is somehow figuring out a way where now I communicate with everybody daily. I've messaged our cleaners. I talk to my rehab guys. You know, I do this and that making it where we can like not be in communication for three, four, five days, maybe, you know, a week or hopefully two, you know, in the middle of Yellowstone or Glacier or wherever and not have service. That's going to be kind of the next big hurdle just because I'm sure you are very familiar with it. A lot of the really, really great spots, Wi-Fi is uh, non-existent or very, very, very little. Yeah, totally. Especially in places like Yellowstone. But I mean, there are a lot of places that do have the decent Wi-Fi. And I know there's a lot of people working on building more solutions for that as well. But that's probably a conversation for another time since we're running <laughs> towards the end of this interview. Is there a good place for people to connect with you online, Mike? Yeah, Instagram. I think my handle right now is uh, Mike Tronio. It's uh, M-I-K-E and then my last name C-O-T-R-O-N. EO, or they can shoot me an email at rehabmike, LLC, 
at Gmail. Awesome, man. I will make sure to link up to both of those in the show notes. Thanks so much, man, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Mike. Wherever you're listening at today, I hope you have an amazing afternoon, night, morning, if you're an early riser. (laughs) And I'll see you guys next time on the RV Entrepreneur Podcast. 